0: way. If you have Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Rachel mentioned those um, black hardcover Bibles that you'll find under a chair near you, if you're using one of those. Uh, Page 966 uh, is where you will find uh, our text for today. During this um, season of Lent, we are walking through a sermon series called Sin and Salvation where each week we are looking at a different picture that emerges in Scripture of sin and, and salvation. Um, I shared a couple of weeks ago, but just thought it was worth reiterating this morning, that I have a couple specific hopes and ways that I've been asking uh, God to work uh, in, this, uh, in this series. One of those hopes is that I'm asking God to renew and to deepen our appreciation for what it is that Christ has accomplished. That he'd renew and deepen our appreciation for what salvation is. That salvation wouldn't just be kind of this nebulous word that's like something we talk about when we come to church because we think we're supposed to. But we'd really deepen our understanding of what salvation is. And that also, then second, that as we grow in our own appreciation, that we would be better equipped to share this good news of Jesus with, with other people. The more uh, robust understanding of sin and salvation that we have, the more of these pictures that we start to wrap our mind around from Scripture, the better equipped we will be to not only talk about Jesus' work in general kinds of terms or through one of those lenses, but really to to think about and to navigate um, conversations with people that we know, real men and women that we know, how are these different pictures of salvation going to resonate with them and where they find themselves in their lives today? So each week in the series, we'll do two things. We'll we'll contemplate a a specific picture of salvation, and then we'll think about how might that picture of salvation resonate with the real men and women that that we know. So first, we'll we'll contemplate. And today, uh, we're looking at the salvation picture of reconciliation. Reconciliation. And that is that, that though you and I were God's enemies because of sin, that our relationship with God has been fully restored through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are a handful of texts in the Bible that we could use to consider this salvation picture of reconciliation. Today we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16-21. through 21. Uh, 2 Corinthians, just a really quick uh, background on that. 2 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul in the mid-50s AD, somewhere around 56 AD. Uh, Paul has a very long and tumultuous relationship with the church in Corinth. Uh, he writes, ultimately, at least four letters to that church, uh, addressing various situations and problems that, that emerge there. Uh, we have two of those uh, letters in our Bible. We know them as First and Second Corinthians, but in those letters themselves, Paul also references two additional letters that he sent to this church that somewhere along the, the way have, have gotten lost. We don't know what the content specifically of those letters uh, is. We, uh, if you were with us this past fall, we really looked at really the, almost the entirety of uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. So today we're looking at just a small portion of 2 Corinthians uh, in chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and follow along with me as I read. And I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus No longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new is come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. We pray for us. Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God. And by you, All things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, things that are visible, things that are invisible. All things were created through you, and all things were created for you. In you, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through you to reconcile to God all things. Jesus, you have made peace by the blood of your cross. And so may your spirit this morning, just in these few moments that we have together, may your spirit open our eyes to see, may your spirit open our ears to hear that we might know this piece, and that we might know the one who has purchased it for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see really four parts, uh, four ways we could talk about or think about reconciliation from this text. The need for reconciliation, the cost of reconciliation, the reality of reconciliation, the progression of reconciliation. The need, the cost, the reality, and the progression. So, first, the need for reconciliation. Uh, reconciliation is the bringing together of sides that are estranged from one another. It's the changing of a relationship from anger to love, from hostility to friendship. And so, even when we encounter the word reconciliation, that tells us a lot. The word reconciliation presupposes that there was at one point an intact, vibrant relationship between God and humanity. And we read about that relationship all the way back at the beginning of Scripture in the book of Genesis. God creates men and women in his image, and there is a perfect and intact relationship between them. But the word reconciliation also presupposes that something has broken that relationship, and that there is now enmity and hostility between God and humanity. So, we wouldn't even have to talk about reconciliation. Reconciliation wouldn't be necessary if God and people had maintained a harmonious relationship. A pastor and theologian named John Stott says it this way He says, If what was created through Christ needed later to be reconciled through Christ, something must have gone wrong in between. If what was created through Christ later needed to be reconciled through Christ, something must have gone wrong. In between, What went wrong in between? Sin. Sin is what has gone wrong in between. In the midst of the perfection of what God has created, we, humanity, rebelled against God. We, we chose our way over God's way. We trusted ourselves. We chose to trust ourselves instead of God. And because of our rebellion, God and humanity were estranged. And the enmity there in that relationship really exists on both sides. So on God's part, there is God's hostility toward humanity's sin. His justice, his his holiness, his perfection means that he must treat sin with hostility. He cannot give it quarter. He cannot treat it nicely. He's hostile toward sin. Humanity also has hostility toward God. And we don't often think about it that way, do we? But really, every time that that I sin, every mistake that I make, we like to downplay it, but every time I sin, that is a declaration of my hostility against the one who made me for himself. It's a declaration of my hostility against God's good design for my life and me saying, you know what, that's great and all, I'm going to choose to trust myself and do it my way instead. And with that hostility comes separation. The hostility both... Uh, God's hostility against sin, our hostility against God, that keeps us from experiencing this intimate relationship that we each were designed to have and that humanity did have with God before sin entered the world. So we need reconciliation with God. There's a need for reconciliation. But what we see immediately is that reconciliation will come at a cost. So let's talk about that, the cost of reconciliation. There is always a cost to reconciliation. Reconciliation. And the cost of that reconciliation is always proportional to the amount of hostility involved. So the greater hostility there is between two parties, the greater the estrangement that results from that hostility, and therefore the greater the cost of reconciliation to bring those two sides back together. So sometimes that cost is relatively small. Uh, when my kids, I, I have two daughters, when they fight over what they call the blue horse spoon, it's a little spoon that has a blue horse on it, All right, when they fight over that, um, that can bring out a toddler-sized dose of, of, of hostility toward one another. It can bring estrangement between two sisters. But the cost of reconciliation there is, is relatively small. One of them does the incredibly self-sacrificial act of using another spoon for the day and waiting to use that spoon the next day when it's, when it's their turn. So sometimes the cost is relatively small, but often the cost is far greater than that. And we know this from our own relationships, and and particularly the broken relationships in our lives. Some of the most uh, powerful photographs that I've ever come across in in my life, they appeared in the April 2014 edition of uh, the New York Times Magazine. Uh, You can access the digital version for free online. I'm happy to send you the link if you want to see it. Uh, April 2014 edition of the New York Times Magazine. Twenty years earlier, before that was published in 1994, nearly a million people were killed in southern Rwanda when the Hutu people uh, committed genocide against the Tutsi people. And in the two decades, and, and even in the years since, in the two decades that followed, there were different nonprofit organizations, there were different churches, governmental, non-governmental agencies that all came together and have been doing counseling with both um, the perpetrators, the Hutu perpetrators, and the Tutsi victims, the survivors of that genocide, in really what's been a a, a national, broad-sweeping effort at bringing reconciliation. So in 2014, a photographer named Pieter Hugo uh, took a series of portraits. And each one of these portraits includes one Hutu perpetrator with one uh, Tutsi survivor. And it was taken after, you know, whichever counseling group was kind of involved, paired paired up people in kind of small pockets. And as they went through the process, if they reached the end of it, there was a formal apology offered from the perpetrator to the victim. And if that victim survivor were to accept that forgiveness, then there was some kind of gift given in exchange for that, and it was called done and reconciled. These are really powerful photographs. I would highly recommend you take a few minutes to, to look at them when you have the time. But they are not powerful because of like, the lighthearted, carefree nature of the men and women that are in them. They're powerful for the very opposite reason. If you look at these photographs, what you will see is that the men and women in them are tired. And they're weary. And their eyes, both the perpetrators and the survivors, are filled with pain. In some of them, they, they still look incredibly cold and calloused toward one another. And in some, they're posed really awkwardly. And I don't know if they chose to like, stand or sit next to each other in that way or if like, somebody did that for them, but some of them are, are awkward. And what those images capture, what they display really in, in striking fashion, is the cost of reconciliation. Like if you are a Tutsi survivor and a Hutu perpetrator murdered a member of your family. And then they come to you and they ask you to look them in the eyes and hear them out and hear them asking and requesting your forgiveness for that. You are going to pay, if you are the survivor in that scenario, an incredible cost to put away your hostility, to put away your hatred for that person and their entire group of people. So I, I honestly don't know if I could do that. I've never been confronted with any situation remotely like like that. I honestly don't know if I can do it. But what I do know from what God has revealed in his word is that in my sin, I am a far worse enemy toward God. I'm a far worse enemy toward God. I I do know that I set myself in opposition not only to fellow image bearers of God, precious men and women created in the image of God like I am. I also set myself in opposition to God himself and I choose my own way, and I choose my own kingdom, and my own desires over his. And that I not only rebelled against God himself, but then in my rebellion, I contribute to the pollution and the corruption of the good world that God created, and I make the world worse in that sense for everybody else. So reconciliation between God and humanity, or God and even more personally, a man like me, is going to come with the greatest price tag we can imagine. Because that gap between the sinless perfection of God and the sinful rebellion of humanity is infinite. So reconciliation will not come cheaply. But what we have in this text, and specifically in verse 21, we get to see just how great that cost was. For our sake, so on behalf of we who were hostile toward God, God made this exchange possible, whereby perfect, sinless Jesus, the one who knew no sin, as Paul references him there, took sin upon himself. He absorbed the hostility that God had against sin that was meant for us, so that we who are enemies, once sinful people like you and me, might experience this exchange whereby we become identified with God's righteousness. That's the cost of reconciliation between God and humanity. It's this exchange, it's this substitution where sin for righteousness and righteousness for sin, where where Jesus takes our place and we get to take Jesus' place. If God is going to uphold justice, then his hostility towards sin can't just simply be swept under the rug. We can't pretend that's not a big deal. It's got to be dealt with and not dismissed. And so only by this exchange can God put away his hostility towards sin. Now consider even more the significance of this. Who is Jesus? Right? Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God with us. So he's not some kind of independent third-party substitute. Jesus is God. And so what we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that God is taking the punishment upon himself. God bears his own hostility towards sin. Even more remarkable than that is that God does this while human beings are still hostile toward him. And we read it together this morning in our call to worship and again in our words of encouragement. Romans 5, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who's the offended party in in all of this, right? God is the offended party. We are the ones who have brought about this hostility by our rebellion against him. And yet, God the offended party is the one who takes the initiative to put away his hostility before we ever consider doing something like that. So reconciliation we don't only need it, but there's a cost to it, and it's possible because of God's initiative to bear his own hostility against sin through the work of Jesus. And then, like it says in verse 19, God no longer counts our trespasses against us. The, the hostility and the enmity is put away because in Jesus that cost is paid. And so, next, let's talk about the reality. Of reconciliation. We've talked about the need for it. We've talked about the cost of it. Let's talk about the reality of reconciliation. When people uh, respond to Jesus in faith, they experience reconciliation with God. So it's not just salvation that's now been accomplished in general. It's now salvation that gets applied to us, that gets appropriated to us personally. And what it does when when God reconciles us, when we believe in that work of Christ, it changes us. It brings about a fundamental difference in our lives. So back into the end of verse 21, reconciled people become the righteousness of God. So this is not just some kind of transactional experience. It's actually a a complete change of identity. That reconciled people are so fundamentally changed that we become identified with the righteous perfection of God himself. And what that means, the great, beautiful reality for what that means, is that we are not in the process of reconciliation with God. We're not in the process of reconciliation with God. Right? Because of the brokenness that exists in our own human relationships with one another, the main category we have when we think about racial reconciliation, either in a one-on-one setting or in kind of more social kinds of issues, the main category we have are these long, drawn-out processes and slow and careful steps toward one another, maybe at the end of that we'll actually experience reconciliation, and maybe at the end of that we won't. But because we become the righteousness of God, it is done. It is done in Christ. We are reconciled to God. The Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth says it like this, Reconciliation was finished in Christ's death. Paul did not preach a gradual reconciliation. He preached what the old divines used to call the finished work. He preached something done once for all, a reconciliation which is the base of every soul's reconcilement, not an invitation only. And that's why Paul can say this famous verse in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, present tense, already, right now, a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. The the reality of reconciliation means that God isn't still working things out with us. Right? We aren't in conflict resolution with God. We aren't attending couples counseling with God. We aren't attending a peacemaking seminar with God. Those photos, 20 years later, the Hutu and Tutsi men and women still bear the, the weariness and the pain of all that hostility that existed between them. But not God. But not God. With God, peace has been made. And the enmity and the the hostility has been put away forever. And all that remains for you and I is this inexhaustible well of the gracious love of God. What is God's disposition toward you? What is God's disposition toward me through the work of Jesus? It is that even on our worst day, Even at our lowest point, we are the beloved, reconciled sons and daughters of God. We are God's friends. And there's no enmity or hostility remaining between us. Fourth, Paul also here talks about the progression of reconciliation. He's writing to this church and he's saying, you are not the end of God's reconciling work in the world. For one thing, reconciliation means that we change the way that we think about other people. We change the way that we look at other human beings. Verse sixteen: From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So, if the finished, so the, the, what he's saying there is that the finished work of Jesus means that we can no longer regard people as if this physical present life is all that matters that we have to remember that each and every person we encounter, like ourselves, is also a spiritual being who will live for eternity and is meant to live for eternity with a restored relationship with the God who made them. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books called The Weight of Glory, said this. He said, you have never talked to a mere mortal. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. And so this reconciling work of God means that we have to change the way we think about and the way we look at other people. We can no longer just regard them according to the flesh. And in light of everything else in this passage, we remember that other people like us need the very same reconciliation with God that we need. And that that's been purchased by this great exchange of Jesus. And what Paul then spells out here in these few short verses is the incredibly significant role that you and I get to play in God's reconciling work. And namely, it is that we become reconciled reconcilers. Who are Christians? What's another way to describe Christians? They are reconciled reconcilers. God gives us, Paul says, the the, the very same people that have been reconciled now to him. He gives us the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, He entrusts the message of reconciliation to uh, the reconciled themselves. And he says here, even to the Corinthians, as he writes this, we implore you to be reconciled to God. We go and we are sent as reconciled reconcilers imploring people to experience the same reconciliation that we ourselves need and have received through Christ. And so in that spirit, let's now just transition a little bit and talk about how this picture of salvation, this picture of reconciliation, might resonate with the real men and women that you know. Right? How might reconciliation resonate in our moment in our cultural context. We live, and and we talked about this a lot back in our month of uh, prayer and awareness in January, we live in a society that is incredibly divided. Racially divided, politically divided, economically divided, many other kinds of division. And what that means is that really every single day all around us is a society desperately crying out for reconciliation. Sometimes overtly, Uh, sometimes not as much, but our society is crying out around us for reconciliation. And what they are offered most of the time are cheap, shallow, and incomplete attempts at pursuing reconciliation. We often as a society foolishly put our hope in the same kinds of broken sources that have brought the divide in the first place. So a better political system, the best political system, though important, cannot be our ultimate hope for bridging political divides. And understanding our distinct racial identities, though important, can't be our ultimate hope for racial reconciliation. And money, though important, can't be our ultimate hope for solving economic woes. And the more that these attempts come up short, the more that they have throughout history, and the more that they continue to in this generation, the more that they continue to come up short, the more that it will point to the need for a deeper kind of reconciliation which is this fundamental reconciliation that has existed since the fall, and that's the reconciliation between God and humanity. Now, even for for those that you know who might not care at all about these broader societal divides, right? I know many of the people you interact with probably have somewhat of of a social conscience. Maybe you have a few friends or neighbors or coworkers that don't, they just couldn't care less about any of those things. Even for those who don't, Reconciliation will often resonate powerfully with people. Why? Because we can relate. Because we can individually and personally relate. We've all experienced hostility and enmity and estrangement in our relationships with other people. And so, reconciliation, I think, uniquely out of the different pictures of salvation that we have in Scripture, resonates with people because of our own firsthand experience. So there are some of us that have first-hand experience with the legal system. and We can relate maybe firsthand to the courtroom picture of God's justification. Others of us don't have that first-hand experience with the legal system or the courtroom. That's probably a good thing if you don't have that as part of your background. Some of us do. Uh, hardly any of us have any kind of first-hand experience with an actual, literal slave market and this picture that emerges in Scripture of God's redemption where he buys slaves to sin out of that slavery to sin. We don't know what a literal slave market looks like. We haven't lived in that cultural moment, I, most of us. Some of you may have lived overseas and half. But we all have experienced estrangement in relationships. Who among us hasn't felt the pain of hostility from someone that you care about deeply? And when you, f- when you experience that hostility from someone else, you, you might respond to that in anger, Right? You might try to sweep it under the rug like it doesn't affect you, but that's because it's a wound. That's because it's a wound. It's so painful that it's too hard to even deal with. It's, it's too hard to even call it a wound. So it's easier just to get angry, or it's easier to pretend like it doesn't affect you at all. And likewise, who among us hasn't contributed to estrangement in relationships? Who among us hasn't allowed our own hostility, whether that's a a passive form of hostility or a very active form of hostility? Who hasn't allowed uh, our hostility to drive a wedge between us and someone else? Underneath the brokenness of our relationships, there's a longing for reconciliation. And we might go about our days and our weeks pretending that there's not a need for that because that's easier. And no doubt we will not be excited to, we will struggle to be the ones who take the first step in pursuing it because we're proud and it takes a lot of humility and it takes a lot of vulnerability to approach someone that you are estranged with and say something like, I miss you and something has gone horribly wrong in our relationship and I don't want it to be that way anymore. I don't know if you've ever had to do that to somebody, with somebody. That takes a lot of vulnerability and a lot of humility to be the one that moves first. But there isn't a single person in this room or who lives on your street or who works next to you at your job. Among all the men and women that that you and I interact with, there isn't a single person who is experiencing complete wholeness in their relationships. And what that means is that every single person that you and I interact with is longing for reconciliation already. They're already longing for reconciliation. From the minute that any of us experiences abuse, or betrayal, or rejection, or hostility, or hatred, the groundwork has already been laid in the deepest places of our soul to understand and to appreciate this salvation picture of reconciliation. And I, I hope you're, you're even sensing this now. Reconciliation is one of the most personal pictures of salvation that we have in the Bible it says that salvation is not some kind of impersonal cosmic transaction carried out by a God who just is kind of like, you know, turning gears behind the scenes. Reconciliation is the salvation picture that says this is God restoring this intimate relationship that has gone horribly wrong. It's that you and I have destroyed our friendship with God and that he has paid the cost to restore that friendship. It is that you and I have forsaken our first love and God, the jilted lover, has pursued his runaway bride. And so as each of us grows in our own appreciation for what Christ has done, we can then speak with power and we can speak with clarity. We can speak of the worth of Jesus' reconciliation into the broken relationships, not only in our own lives, but the broken relationships among those that we get to know and call friends. We can invite other people to consider what we ourselves must consider every time that we come face-to-face with this salvation picture of reconciliation. And that is this realization that says, where would I be if God treated me the way that we treat one another in our human relationships? Where would I be if God treated me the way that we often treat one another in human relationships? What if God were too proud to take the initiative to put away his hostility, to put away his enmity. God's hostility towards sin is pure. It's more valid than any of the hostility that we might experience toward another person. And there was no blame, as there often is in human relationships, there's no blame on God's side for him to take in the fracture of our relationship. And yet... He not only takes the first step toward us, in Christ he takes all of the steps toward us. And he puts away his hostility through the cross of Christ so that we who were once his enemies might now be his friends. So may we, as we read texts like this and think about the salvation picture of reconciliation, may we rejoice in our reconciliation that is purchased for the work of Jesus. May we never forget our need for it, the cost of it, and that that cost has been paid so that it is a reality. And then may God use us as he continues his great work of reconciling the world to himself. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are not just author and creator. These massive, cosmic, powerful works that you do, but you also are one who is our friend and one who loves us as a husband loves his bride. That you give us these personal, relational, intimate pictures of your, sal- of, of your salvation in Scripture and that you have done all of the work that it takes to reconcile us to yourself. And we lament where our sin fractures that relationship. And we lament the places where our sin then fractures the relationships we have with one another. And we lament in our society where those things have gone horribly wrong at epidemic levels between races and between different political parties and between people of different socioeconomic status. We know deep within our soul that we need reconciliation and a deeper, better kind of reconciliation than we can get by our human effort. And so I pray that we would look for the first time today, maybe for some of us, or back to for the rest of us, the need for our reconciliation with you. And that you have paid the cost for that reconciliation and that because of Jesus, that we are no longer in that process of being reconciled to you. That it is done. And that you call us friends. And so as your friends, we're going to come to this table in just a moment, and we're going to look at both the cost and we're going to look at the reality of what you have accomplished. And I pray you would, by your Spirit, deepen our appreciation of the worth of what you have accomplished. And we pray that in your name. Amen.